going? Yeah. Good. I, um, I love the fact that you guys are praying for the nations. I, I was reminded as you were talking about that, you know, I'm praying 24-7 and, you know, going all night prayer meetings. I was reminded of several years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to be with, anybody ever heard the name David Youngie Cho or Paul Youngie Cho? I, I was in a gathering when we were together in a small group setting, and anyway, he was there, and of course, I felt like a peon, you know, and like an ant next to a giant. Um, but he was talking about prayer, and he was talking about how he used to pray and how they would go to the prayer mountain there at, right outside of Seoul, South Korea, and that they would pray all day long, and they would pray all night, and they would pray, you know, and he would talk about like, you know, praying for 12 hours at a time or stuff like that. And I remember somebody asking me, said, Brother Cho, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, like, how is it possible to pray for 12 hours? Because they would go to this, they'd have like these little, in these, in Prayer Mountain, they had these little tiny like caves, literally, that you would go in and there would be like a little desk and a place to sit and stuff. And, and he said, oh, brother, it's very easy. He said, you pray, and sometimes when I pray, I fall asleep. <laughs> he said, I take nap. He said, but, and this is the part that, you know, because I thought he was kind of being funny, and then he said, there is something wonderful about going to sleep with Jesus on your tongue and waking up with Jesus on your mind. And so, you know, I just want to encourage you and tell you how much I'm proud of you um, and I love you. I love your leadership. Um, my role has changed since the last time I was here. And I've always, you know, my, my time at Sam, Sam Houston has always been somewhat parallel to what I do for a living in my ministry. But now it is like absolutely, it's, it's not even tangentially related. Um, so... The point being is there are a lot of things, you know, I, 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 I have to do. I have a pretty demanding job, and what I, there are a lot of things I have to do. This is, by God's grace, what I get to do. And I am just so honored to be able to be here. I've said for years I have no clue whatsoever why university students would listen to me. I mean, you know, I'm somewhere between a gnome and Santa Claus, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I learned a, a several years ago that, you know, I'm old enough to be everybody in the room's dad. So I would just embrace that. And, you know, I would say that maybe God has equipped me, gifted me, inspired me to talk to you the way a spiritual father would talk to you, the one that you maybe wish you had if you didn't have a spiritual father. And so that's really what I'm here to do tonight. Um, it's not going to surprise you that I am going to talk about missions, be a little bit silly for me to come here and talk about marriage. Um, I mean, not that, I mean, it's a great subject, you know, uh, and, you know, and I, I think I have an absolutely wonderful marriage, um, mostly because I have an absolutely wonderful wife um, who is, you know, she's only been here one time in all the times I've been here. And that's usually because she's like holding down the fort uh, wherever we're living at the time. And, uh, but she is, um, you know, just minutes, if not seconds before I came up to the platform, I got a text, just said, you know, I love you and I'm praying for you. And that's not really, yeah, they, uh, you know, uh, that's partially about me, but it's probably even more about you. You know, at the end of the day, I, I want to do well. I, I've firstborn people pleaser. You know, I, I, I want people to like me. You know, I want to do well. There's a tiny, fallen, broken, sin-twisted piece of me that wants to impress. 
Maybe you have that, maybe you don't. Um, come forward for the altar time afterwards. Um, um, <laughs> we'll meet down here together. Uh, and I have no idea why I said that. Um, you know, but we, we have these, this incredible treasure in jars of clay. And, you know, I, I get the opportunity of talking to you in, in a way that would, you know, talk about, talking about Amy and our marriage and all that. And, you know, in some amazing way, God has given us this grace on our marriage that in our early years of marriage, we had three miscarriages back to back to back. And to the point that we actually thought we weren't going to be able to have kids and started thinking about maybe adoption. I mean, adoption is beautiful and, you know, all of that. But there's always still, of course, that side of you want to be able to have, you know, there was pain attached to those miscarriages. And we wanted to have, you know, we still wanted to have our biological children. And we learned early on, or somehow, I don't know that anybody ever told us this, we just somehow, by God's grace, figured it out that hardship in a relationship will either bring you together or drive you apart. And we made an early commitment that whatever we face in life, it will bring us closer together. And there is not, like, not a question in this world that that woman has my back and I have hers, you know, and she has a Glock 380 in her nightstand. And if somebody tried to hurt me, um, <laughs> uh, uh, if somebody tried to hurt me, she would shoot them, um, you know, um, she is a Marines kid, you know, and as they say, Jesus can change us, but only a little bit. Uh, nothing been greater than doing life in missions with Amy. Um, and, and I'm, forgive me if, you know, I talk too much about marriage because there is so much value in singles. <laughs> Did I say something funny? And I, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul was single. You know, now to be single because you're stupid—that's a different thing. You know, um, you know, felt like I needed to put that in there for a couple of the guys. Um, but, um, um, you know, yeah, um, and I never, you know, I, I had the opportunity for, uh, 10 years to be the area director for the Assemblies of God for the Middle East and North Africa, oversaw what God was doing through our organization as a tiny part of God's global workforce to, um, see some beautiful things and to do some things that I hope and pray had some significance. Um, but, you know, during that time, it was, it was not easy. Um, things, God let some things through his giant sovereign hand. He let some things fall between his fingers into our lives that I honestly would have preferred he not because they were painful. And I had to understand, I had to accept for me, from my belief and my understanding of scripture is that God is all powerful. And even though this world is broken and it is marred by sin, that though God never calls it, God never tempts me, God does not hurt me. But if he, if something Sometimes in his goodness and his good plan and his sovereignty, not being bound by time, he may understand that allowing something to come through his loving, nail-printed hands into my life might actually be for my good. 
though it does not feel like it at all. It's been a joy for me to do that with the support of a loving spouse beside me. That doesn't mean, I, like I said, doesn't mean I don't believe in singles. So when I talk about that, it's just that my life has been so enriched by a godly woman. And I think she, her life has been enriched by a godly man. That's really why... <laughs> Uh, uh, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, this is getting out of control. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know. You just blew it for me there. Um, yeah, uh, uh, a merry heart does a person good. Life is way too serious to take ourselves too serious. You know, so it's always good to laugh. Um, so tonight, the point being I was trying to make was, you know, the main reason I don't take Amy with me everywhere is so that when I can say her life has been enriched by me, she's not there to object. Um, no, but you know, I think we have been mutually beneficial and good for one another. And with that said, you know, I guess all I'm trying to say is I wish the same for you. Yeah. And in case you have never heard our, our story, I had one conversation with her in the library and asked her to marry me 11 days later. Um, now, 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 wait, wait. As I would tell my daughter when she was young and she would hear that story, it's like, you know, just so you know, this is one of those, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, I used to tell my daughter all the time, God wants you to marry the man. You know, I want you to marry the man that God tells you to marry. And in case you're curious, God's voice sounds exactly like mine. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty much her response to that comment also. All right, we're, 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 let's move on. Every one of the Gospels has a passage that we could refer to as the Great Commission. Um, so, you know, missions is not something that's just a handful of verses uh, cobbled together. It's really the theme of the entire Bible. Um, Bible starts with a sinless couple in a garden, monolinguistic, monocultural, monoethnic. The story of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 ends not in a garden, but in a city. Multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilinguistic. It's amazing that when God had an opportunity to bring everything back to the way it was in the beginning, he chose intentionally not to. He chose to leave the beauty of that mosaic. 14,000 unique ethno-linguistic people groups in the world today. 6,700 of them, about 3.2 billion people, not simply lost, but with little or no access to the gospel. I lived in Amman, Jordan. When I walked out of my front door, I never had to go, Lord, direct me to a lost person. I didn't know a found one that lived anywhere near 
my house. Jesus wants to not only reconcile students to Christ, he wants to reconcile Iraqi students and Bengali students and Yazidi students and Thai students and secularized German students and Buenos Argentinian students. He wants to reconcile all of them. And he wants to save young men whose lives are broken by sin so that they would grow up to be responsible men and women. Sorry, not men and women, sorry. <laughs> so I have to clarify that in today's world. Um, that they would grow up to be responsible husbands and fathers. That through their lifestyle, disciples would not be made simply outside in the community, but in their homes. And that because they stopped drinking and they stopped smoking and they stopped doing other things that were destructive, they were actually able to put aside material wealth and do the things that the Bible says, like not only leave an inheritance to their children, but also to be an investor in the kingdom. God wants to change all of those it's not that God wants us simply to see disciples made so that we can give people tickets to heaven. He wants to see the nations mobilized because the Great Commission belongs to the global church. Not just to us. But you are the one responsible for you. So tonight... We're going to read the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. Then I am going to unpack a few things, and I am really sorry I forgot to press record, which is good because previously everything has been silly. Um, <laughs> all right. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Tonight, I want to talk to you about something. There's, a, there's some stickers somewhere in the building. Uh, I don't know where they are. Where are they? Okay. They, they say radical obedience changes the world. So tonight, that's really, I've had these stickers printed because it really is, the, it's the theme of my message. Radical obedience changes the world. 1958, a country preacher named David Wilkerson was living in a rural part of Pennsylvania. A few months before that, sitting in his, living in his office, one night, he, he, he tended to stay up late and watch television. This was back when there were only three channels. And he would watch television late into the night. He talked about watching what was, used to be called The Late Show. Actually, it's still called The Late Show. But, you know, he, he would watch that late into the night. And he said one night he felt like God prompted him that would he be willing to give up his television and spend that time praying? And he said, yes, Lord, I, I'm willing to do that. But, <laughs> you know, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it, I'm not going to give my, you know, throw my television out, so I'm going to have to sell it. So I'm going to put an ad in the newspaper, and if somebody responds, and, oh, and if they'll pay the amount of money that I'm asking for, then I'll sell the television. He told his wife about that, and she's like, I'm not sure that's a great idea, but, you know, you go ahead and do whatever you think, you know. And long story short, 
somebody actually does respond, they say, I'll pay the amount. They come, they pick up the television, they give him the money. Start spending the money, start spending the time in prayer. Now, all along, it wasn't that God forced him to do this. He just asked him. He said, yeah, so spends time in prayer. He's spending more time reading his Bible and praying late in the evening. One night he finishes his prayer time and he looks over on his desk and there is a copy of Life magazine. I'm not sure if Life even exists anymore. It probably doesn't. But it was an old magazine that kind of like a U.S. focused magazine. And on the front cover of it, there was the depiction of a trial taking place in New York City where five gang members had brutally assaulted and murdered a paraplegic boy. I mean, the whole, not only the city, but the nation was just angry about this. But instead of being angry about it, he felt unexplainably, irresistibly drawn to the five boys who had assaulted this young man. So much so that he felt like he was supposed to leave his little rural city and go to New York City to talk to these boys and to try to share Christ with them. If you've ever had a chance, you could read the rest of that story in the book, The Cross and the Switchblade. It talks about how he goes, you know, he never, in all of his years, never one time got to meet any one of those five boys. So why am I telling this story? Obedience, remember what it says, teach them to obey. Obedience is based not on hoped for, expected, or desired results. Obedience is based on commitment to the one issuing the command. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If it had started with simply verse 19, all of us could have said that. I could tell you to go make disciples. I could tell you to go into all the world. I could tell you to do all these things. But the reality is, is that no authority on heaven or earth has been given to me as it relates to you. But for Jesus, he can still say to us, all authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples. All authority. And he validated it with an empty tomb. As one church leader says, I don't know that I understand or like everything that the Bible says, but when somebody rises from the dead under their own power, I will choose to obey them rather than me. It is still the resurrected Lord who calls us to radical obedience. What is radical obedience? Radical obedience is instant. Now, I will be honest. I need to tell you. I think I wind up in the right place when God tells me to do something. I eventually get there. I cannot tell you I always start there. Quite frankly, sometimes it's like, yeah, maybe, you know, I'm not really sure I heard God right on that one, you know. Um, it's, and it's usually an accommodation to my own desires and my own flesh. So radical obedience is instant. Radical obedience doesn't really ask. It, it, it strives to make sure they understand so we want to make sure we're understanding what God's saying. And that usually involves bringing others into the dialogue. 
But once we understand what the Lord is saying, then we don't make, it's unconditional. Lord, I will obey if you will. Rather, it's Lord, you said, and I will do. Radical obedience will change the world. Certainly we would all acknowledge that our world needs changing. Man, our world is broken. Deeply, deeply broken. Sometimes Amy and I will watch the news and at the end of it, we're just like, oh God. I feel like the apostle John at the end of the book of the Revelation where after seeing all these things, his only response left is, oh Lord Jesus, come. It's like, Lord, this world is so broken. But the Lord clearly wants to change the world. Not necessarily the world systems, but certainly the people of the world. And God wants to use us. God wants to use you. No matter how broken, no matter how weak, no matter how insecure you may feel, God wants to use you. I mean, this is a guy up here talking to you tonight that graduated from high school and had never read a book from cover to cover. Now, I want to make it clear, when God saved my soul, I also feel like he saved my mind. And part of being a Christ follower is that God asks us to do everything we do to do it with excellence. Not from a driven perspective, but to do things to honor him. It's called glorifying God in all that we do. Whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. So when God saved my mind, saved my soul, I think he also saved my mind. As a matter of fact, I really felt like he poured gasoline on my brain and lit it on fire. I wanted to learn everything. You know, for a boy who had never read a book from cover to cover and still struggles with reading. I mean, there's probably not a person in this room who reads slower than I do. But a guy who now has multiple master's degrees and working on a PhD, not because of my own efforts. I mean, it took a lot of hard work, but because of what God did in my life. The point being, God will take us as we are, but he also wants to use us. And in the process of using us, he wants to refine us and make us into something more. Radical obedience will change the world. The world definitely needs changing. Forget the social injustice. Don't forget it, but for a moment, put it aside. The brokenness of our world, the brokenness of relationships, the quantity of mental illness that not only permeates our homes, but our streets. We walk out and we see the homeless Quite frankly, most of us by that are repelled. We're repelled by the poor because quite frankly, the poor not only want what we have, they need what we have. And so because of that, we are repelled. Some of us maybe even came from a background where we were poor. Jesus saved us and by our hard work, we grew and we became better. And it feels like it's somehow stepping backwards to step from what we have to step into condescend to work with the poor. Understanding, however, that he who was rich became poor so that we <laughs> Jesus left the ultimate riches for the ultimate poverty, not about what he had or didn't have materially, but there has never been a bigger gap of what someone gave up That's right. That's good. Yes. for our sake. Yes. 
Radical love will change the world. The world needs to be changed. And God wants to use you to do it. In a few minutes, we're going to wrap up our time and we're going to, I'm going to ask you four questions. I'm going to go ahead and ask you the questions now so that you can be thinking over them for the next few minutes. One I'm going to ask you is when we talk about radical obedience, it's what does God want you to do tonight? Leonard Ravenhill used to say, we want to change the world, but we can't even wash our dishes. We change the world by doing the right thing now. A series of right things leads to a right life. And so tonight, the Lord may be asking you to do something, to give up something, to speak a word, to ask for forgiveness from a friend offended, whatever it is. Radical obedience starts with little obedience. So tonight, at the end of our message, we're going to reflect on that in private. Then we're going to break up. Jason's going to come up and he's going to lead us. We're going to break up into small groups. And at that time, we're going to talk about what do I need to do over the next week, the next month, and the next year. Now, some of us, most of us probably won't know what that thing is. But we'll process it together. And what we're doing is we're trying to position ourselves to hear God's voice so that when he speaks, we will be ready to answer. And we will be ready to answer with radical obedience. Radical obedience changes the world. Let me modify that just a bit. Radical, Jesus-centered obedience will change the world. No big surprise, but you don't have to obey me. I guess at some degree, we don't have to obey anybody. Now we have to live with the consequences if we choose not to. But we live in a world that says we have a master of one and it's us. As Christ followers, we understand we have a master of one and it's not us. It's the one to whom all authority has been given. It's Jesus. And it's not the Jesus of modern culture that's a sloppy Jesus that just loves everybody. Yeah, he does love everybody, but he is still the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. He is both universal and exclusive. Jesus-centered, radical, Jesus-centered obedience will change the world. Let me modify it one more time. Radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled obedience will change the world. When I use a term like radical obedience, it could be very easy, especially when we're young and we've come out of darkness and we've, you know, we hear, we, we come here and we, especially to this, this place where we read these old dead guys, you know, and we read people like David Wilkerson and Leonard Ravenhill and A.W. Tozer. And, you know, those guys could be a little bit edgy occasionally, you know, and, and we could think about the radical obedience part, but we need to be reminded of the grace-filled part. I didn't just come to Jesus through grace. I stay attached to him every single day by grace. And so, therefore, my grace, my obedience needs to not only be Jesus-centered, but it certainly needs to be grace-filled. If it is simply radical obedience apart from grace-filled, it will make me angry, it will burn me out, and it is not sustainable. It will suffocate the joy from my life 
And having lived in the Muslim world for 30 years, I can promise you what the Muslim world does not need is another example of joyless religion. They already have that. They need people who are not only willing to go, but stay. And people who, after they've been there and they face the humiliation of language learning and they have dealt with the joys of um, amoebic dysentery. It is gross. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Took my son one time to the doctor. He had amoebic dysentery. He was two years old. He'd walk around the house, be just a happy little boy, and all of a sudden he'd just bend over, screaming. And we knew that was a forerunner of something to come. Um, explosive diarrhea. And uh, we took him to the doctor, to a lab one day, and you know, we had to get him well, and we'd only been on the field about a year, a little less, yeah, about a year, and took him to the doctor, and I'll never forget being in the lab, and this woman, Egyptian woman, in absolutely precise British English, asked us, can the child provide defecation on demand? Yeah, that's okay, that's funny, I mean, you know. <laughs> Everything inside of me wanted to go, can you? You know, <laughs> he's pooped 10 times already today and it's noon. He's got nothing left in him. When you see your child suffering like that and you've borne the embarrassment of humiliating language experiences and you've been through, you know, the insults that come daily from living in a place where Christianity is despised, can you still go and stay with a joyful smile on your face and a song in your heart? You cannot do that simply based on radical obedience. It must be radical, grace-filled obedience. Can I modify it again? <laughs> Radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled, others-focused. Obedience will change the world. This isn't just an obedience that's about us. This is an obedience that's about them. I love the fact that you guys talk about love finds a need and meets it. True love is always others focused. I love the fact that Jesus said, no greater love as anyone but to lay down his life for his friends. Interesting, he doesn't say, you know, I'd lay down my life for my wife and my children without even a thought. Then maybe I start thinking about what friends would be on that list? And Jesus says of his disciples, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but I call you friends because I've taken what the Father's told me and I've told it unto you, I've given it to you. He called them friends, every single one of them, without an exception, would turn their back on him. He already knew that. He knew it was coming. And he still called them friends. Others focused. What's Jesus say? You know, our love is our example. Our love is our sign. It's our love that determines and shows that we are Christ followers. Not our preaching, not our teaching, not our whatever. It's our love for one another. And not only are we supposed to love those that we like, 
and those who are like us, but we're actually supposed to love our enemies. So radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled, others-focused, obedience will change the world. You know what I'm about to say. Can I modify it once more? <laughs> radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled, others-focused, love-motivated, obedience will change the world. I want my children, well, when my kids were little and they were at home, I wanted my kids to obey me. But I didn't want my kids to obey me because they were afraid of me. I wanted them to obey me because they loved me. I wanted them to obey me because they trusted me. I wanted them to understand that I never wanted to, and I can't remember a time where I asked them to do something that wasn't ultimately really for their own good. Love motivated obedience understands that God doesn't ask us to do something because he's simply setting a bar to see if we'll obey. He understands that our love motivated obedience is not only good for us, it's good for others. The truth is, when we don't obey, it's because we don't trust. We don't believe that God really has our best interest at heart. There's only really two options here. He doesn't have our best interest at heart or he doesn't have power. You know, so... that we think maybe, you know, God's just some sort of sadistic, mean, dictatorial father in heaven who is just putting the carrot out there of a, you know, of a reward, asking us to do something because he's holding the stick in his hand, waiting for us to fail. I don't know about you. I don't know anything about individually your backgrounds I do know that I was raised in an extremely works oriented from a very extreme works oriented background my pastor growing up would have never said something like we come to faith in Christ through grace but we stay saved by works but that's basically what was communicated Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It created in me a performance mentality. One that said, you know, I want to obey, but my obedience wasn't based on love. My obedience was based on fear. took a lot of years for me to understand what it meant that with the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't really about any kind of outward demonstration that I might have, but that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a baptism in love because it was a baptism in God. And God is love. And that perfect love cast out all fear. So that when God tells us to do something, even if we don't understand what he's asking us to do, we can always trust his heart. And then, of course, not only is it love motivated in the sense that what God has done for us, but then our service to others, our outward focused service must be love motivated. It must be a God-centered love. It must be one that demonstrates love to others. It must be one that allows fear to fall secondaries. It must be submitted to, under, to a true sense of love. I have a friend, uh, that may come as a surprise to you, um, but... I have a friend by the name of Dikran Salbashian. Dikran is um, an Armenian by ethnicity. 
He was born in Amman, Jordan. If you know anything about the Armenians, you know that in the early 1900s, around 1907, then again in 1915, there were two ethnic genocides that took place in the country of Turkey where Turkey basically set out to exterminate the, the, the Armenians of that western or eastern region of Turkey. Those who survived fled. Every Armenian has a story. If you go back two or three generations, you talk to them, they'll talk about their grandmother that was killed or their grandfather that was killed. Dekron's wife, Ani, her grandfather saw his mother shot and the only way he survived was that at the time, you know, women wore bulky clothing and he climbed up under her dress between her legs and he laid there for three days as, our, as the Turks were walking around and shooting and stabbing everybody to make sure they were dead. And when he understood that there was nobody, he was, his, he was safe, he climbed out, he was an orphan and he started walking across the Syrian desert. He was picked up by a group of Bedouin, raised by them for several years. Finally, after many years, taken to the city of Aleppo in northern Syria and then down to a, another city called Humps in central Syria, where they found an Armenian family and said, hey, we found this child in the desert a few years ago. We know he's Armenian. We think he should be raised by his own people. And they gave him to them and they raised him as a child, but as an orphan. When that is your family history, when Muslims had killed your relatives, your feelings toward these people is not one that is positive. They are raised on the milk of bitterness. They are raised on the milk of revenge. They are raised on the milk of retribution. And even when they get saved, there's this piece down deep inside that really holds tightly to that passage of scripture that says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But love motivated obedience is something different. Pastor Decron tells me the story of going to a meeting in which he was sitting and he and Ani were sitting in a row. And as the person on the platform was speaking, they asked people to turn around to the person behind them and to pray with them. And they turned around in this meeting in, of all places, Seoul, Korea, they turned around and the two people behind them that said hello and then started praying them started praying in Turkish. They said everything inside of them just shut down. It was like a Jew being prayed for by a German in a concentration camp in 1944. He said everything inside of them just shut down. Anger rose up, bitterness rose up. And then supernaturally, as they began to pray, they said they felt a baptism in love. They understood that their reason for not reaching Muslims in Amman had little to do with fear. It had to do with a lack of love. Then Pastor Decron shared this very simple story with me and I will share it with you and I've probably shared this before as an example, but I, it's so worthwhile. If we were in this building tonight and it caught on fire. Let's hope that doesn't happen. 
at least maybe it's holy fire, but you know, uh, that consumes our sin, but not anything else. And my kids were in this room. My wife was in this room. I'd like to think that I would be noble enough to do everything I could to rescue you. But I'm going to be honest here. Until my wife and my kids are safe, I would run over your bodies. <laughs> and if I was outside when the fire happened and my wife and my kids were in here, I know I'd enter a burning building to try to get to them because I wasn't afraid. No, but because perfect love cast out fear. When God asks us to do something, sometimes for you and for me, fear rises up in our hearts. The perfect love of God, the one that spared not his own son for our sakes, that is the love to which we can trust. So that when he asks us to obey, we can set aside our fear. Understanding that we can trust his love. Okay. One more time. Radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled, love-focused, sorry, others-focused, love-motivated. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Hard-working, obedience will change the world. Love that doesn't have sweat attached to it isn't really love. I guarantee you, this world, in all of its brokenness, will not be changed without hard work. Yeah. Learning another language is hard work. Learning another culture is hard work. Spending hours and hours on an airplane is hard work. Leading people who don't want to be led is hard work. Forgiving people that don't, that mistreat you takes hard work. As a matter of fact, nothing that's worthwhile in this world gets done without hard work. As Decron's wife, Ani, who is very spunky says, there is absolutely no room for lazy butt Christians. Folks, I don't, I'm not trying. I know I'm going to sound like this, you know, dad here. We got to work hard. Too much is at stake. This isn't about guilt. This isn't about the burden of a graceless obedience. This is just the reality that to see lives change, to see students reconciled to God, to see the world change, to see lives served and saved, to see the poor restored, to see the broken set free and the prisoner released from prison and all of the things that the kingdom of God calls for, all of it requires hard work. We have all of eternity to rest. But we're going to have to work hard. As a matter of fact, we're all in some way going to work hard. Every day, we trade our time and our energy for something. 
Now I'm really going to sound like an old man. And this is really aimed at my brothers in Christ in the room. And it's coming so, so much from the heart of God. Not, I hope it's coming from the heart of God. It's certainly coming from the heart of a man who loves God and loves you and wants to see your life matter. We got to stop wasting our time. I'm not talking about a, an entertainment-less existence. But if we're spending hours a day playing video games, we're squandering our best. We're squandering our youth. We're squandering our energy and our time. I mean, every moment we spend in something, we're giving it in exchange for something else. I want us to have joy in our lives. I want us to have fun. But what I don't want us to do is to dumb away our lives. I don't want us to look back at the end of the, our, not only our days, but our lives and go, what was it for? Nobody on their deathbed is going to say, man, I just wish I got to the next level of Call of Duty. Remember, this is grace field. It really is. I'm not telling anybody to go and sell their Xbox or whatever. That's not what this is about. This is about discipline. You know, I watch stuff on Netflix. What I don't do is watch six hours of Netflix. It's discipline. It is the understanding that radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled, others-focused, love-motivated, hardworking, obedience will change the world. All right. The absolute last one. I promise. Radical, Jesus-centered, grace-filled, others-focused, love-motivated, hardworking, sacrificial obedience will change the world. It's going to take a sacrifice. I don't think I'm saying anything. I haven't said one thing tonight that you didn't already know. I know that. I, I don't focus on being novel. But what I do hope is that somehow, maybe in this different way of hearing it, the Lord might touch our heart in a different way. Sacrifice that we're talking about is simply one that is motivated and modeled after the sacrifice we saw in our Savior. He gave it all. Understanding that we never give anything that we don't get back 30, 60, and 100 fold. The disciples walking down the road with Jesus said, what about us, Lord? We've given up families and friends. We've left all that behind. What about us? And he said, nobody has ever given up anything for me that they won't get back 30, 60 and 100 fold in the life to come. And as much as I'd loved in right there. And he said, and with that, persecution. The unreached don't remain unreached because nobody ever thought of reaching them. 
The unreached remain unreached because they live in hard-to-reach, hard-to-stay-in, hard-to-tolerate places surrounded by inhospitable people as it relates to the gospel message. Now, the Jordanian people were some of the most hospitable people I'd ever met. Right up until Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. But we're not called to simply go and make friends. We do all we do friendly. We certainly don't need unfriendly evangelism. But friendship never led anybody to Christ. It takes the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel always has the potential of offense. We don't want the offense to be unnecessary. We don't want the offense, the offense to be because of the way we said it. We don't want the offense to be because of the way we live. But we accept that to be told you are a sinner and that you are not good enough to please God is offensive. It is offensive to me today. I forget the gospel and as Martin Luther said, therefore I must preach it to myself every single day. Paul said, put it this way, and we'll close with this. The love of God motivates me. The love of God compels me. It, it calls me to sacrifice. God's love demonstrated through the cross compels me. The image there is a very simple one. It, it really looks like this room. It's the picture of a, a room with a lot of doors on the side, but only one of them is open. And the one that's open is the door of service. The love of God compels me. I can't simply accept the love of God and understand it and not want to do something with it that's outward. It isn't simply as the disciples said, we saw in, in verse 16, it said they saw Jesus and they worshiped. Worship is the beginning place, but it's not the end place. Worship, it presents ourselves, it positions ourselves to be ready to do what God is asking us to do. Worship opens our heart, lays it bare, so that when God says, this is what I want you to do, we understand His greatness, we understand His glory, and we're willing to say, yes, Lord. So tonight, I remind you, 6,700 unreached people groups. 3.2 billion people. People who will never be reconciled to God by someone in their own culture because there isn't someone in their culture to be that agent of reconciliation. That means that somebody is going to have to cross over a geographic, a cultural, and a linguistic barrier. They're going to have to sacrifice so that it can happen. They're going to have to give up some things that were important to them, that they enjoyed, so that someone else could enjoy eternal life. Tonight, I invite you 
to enter into mission with God. We don't do it to earn His favor. We do it because we have His favor. So tonight, we're going to take a moment. We're going to ask that question. What is the Lord asking me to do tonight? You may not be able to do it tonight, but you may be one of those things where you write it in your journal. You send it as a memo. You write it as a memo on your phone. You set a reminder so that you can carry it out tomorrow. But tonight we want to ask, what is it God wants to do tonight? What, what stake does he want us to drive in the ground tonight? That's something we need to do personally. So as Katie plays and leads us tonight, while we're sitting here thinking and praying and meditating, I want the Lord to speak to you. I want you to position yourself to hear what the Lord is saying. And then Jason is going to come and direct us in how we might process the rest of this in community. These altars are open always. If you want to come forward, you're welcome to do that. You're welcome to make where you're at an altar. But let's take time to pray.